How are you doing? You as CTO have responded well to the pandemic. You got your workforce remote. Right now you're dealing with the globalization of the workforce. How are you viewing the future of work? How are you adjusting? What are you saying to your C-suite? How are you approaching your people in a way that is innovative, unique and appropriate for the times? Scott Graves, Paul Johnson, Frank Fabraro are in the CTO studio with me and we'll have a discussion about it. So enjoy. From 7 CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin and you're in the CTO studio. Yeah, maybe just picking up on what you said, Etienne. I think you're right that the world has decided we're all going to work from home. However, I think the conversation now, I think, has shifted to how do we spend the in-person time? Many people have agreed we're going to do some kind of a hybrid. And what I'm seeing is the hybrid is still this big experiment. I think some people are just saying, okay, we're going to do hybrid. That means we'll come in a couple days a week, but there's still not a lot of intentionality around what you do with that in-person FaceTime. Some people are still doing the same old status meetings and maybe tech reviews in person. And I think there's a missing piece there about how do we now take that in-person time that is now incredibly valuable and make the most of it, as opposed to just going through the old motions we used to go through. I think that's still a big unknown at this point. Yeah. From my perspective as an agency, so we work a lot with clients on-site and, and whatnot, we've been Remote first, probably since 2008, 2009. So the transition internally for us to the remote situation starting in 2020 was really didn't have much of an impact at all. At, at that point, well over 60% of our company, they were working from home anyway. So we've gotten really good internally at forming and reforming project teams and stuff across time zones and obviously geographical distances. The challenge though was also in interacting with our clients. And we used to use going on site with clients as times to get our teams together. And then we would always have once a year, we would do a big, we called it P2Con for phase two, where we'd bring everybody together in one location and we'd spend a few days together. So we've been doing that basically since the early tens. And that was really important. So there is obviously tremendous value in getting your time together and trying to find ways to, as Paul said, be intentional about what are we going to do at that time? Just having people together is it's good for water cooler stuff and like the just happening to overhear a conversation and that stuff. But the I think the value that this remote style now adds to people's lives is really big and probably bigger and better than the happen to overhear a conversation as you're walking by kind of thing. But that also leads to, you have to mature as an organization because you can't, you're not going to be standing there like watching people to make sure they're doing their work. You have to have ways to know that people are adding value and accomplishing their tasks and progressing projects forward. You have to have ways to provide feedback on that. So getting really good at the, at, at that mechanics of the kind of performance evals and feedback and communication and, and all of that is really key. You, you bring up a, a good point here that just because we had a pandemic and everyone suddenly started working remote does not prove that there's no value in working on site. Actually, one of my biggest observations about how work has changed since we all went remote is people just are just nasty to each other and slack more, in my view. Because it's just like a classic 90s flame war when you don't have that 
that face-to-face interaction, people get emotionally dysregulated and they sometimes are a little bit more hostile than they normally would. It's a well-known phenomenon and I've seen it in every company that I work in. So I would not say that the case has proved that we can all just be fully remote and there's not going to be any consequences for that. Every Everything has its uh, pros and cons. I just this morning looked at a Slack exchange where a VP had to preface their message with, hey, everybody, I'm not frustrated. I'm not unhappy, but I do need to ask a question. How do I know what the engineering team is working on? We have this status thing and we have that Figma document and What's the plan? How do I see the deliverable? And the insight I had into that exchange was remarkable. The one person would take it like, here's the document, dude. This is how we do it. What's your issue? The other person uses it as an opportunity to say, we should just use a project management dashboard and have real-time updates. Of course, it's not always easy for a non-technical person to know what a breakdown chart really means and all that kind of stuff. It's amazing what you're saying, Scott, in terms of the flame walls or the There is no additional signal anymore that offsets what's being said in Slack. It's like that is becoming the only interface now, which isn't giving teams the opportunity to clarify, read the room, understand the tone, but it's now becoming the only way that there is conversation. And I think that has to be actively combated. You have to take measures to to combat that because people already know how to fight on the internet, right? Like Twitter, Facebook, people have been fighting on the on the internet for 20 years now. People just fall back into those patterns in the workplace when they don't have any mechanism to regulate their emotions via body language and, you know, tone of voice and things like that. Yeah, and it's actually made much worse, I think, by the fact that we have now, people have stratified. So what I mean is the folks that worked in person before COVID, they have a prior relationship. Right. You might have two people that have known each other for 10 years working face to face. And then right then COVID happens. Everybody works from home. And now the new hires don't have the same benefit of that prior 10 years. And so that's a massive disadvantage and an unfair one to the new people. That's such a good point, Paul. Uh, The taking an existing real world relationship into Slack or into virtual is a completely different ballgame. Right. One with a huge advantage over the ones where you've only really interacted through maybe one or two Zoom calls to build relationship or get interviewed. And then the rest is in virtual tooling and or mechanized update calls that don't build or foster any sort of relationship. Exactly. Which goes back to if we're going to have in-person time together. That it, it almost like answers the question, like almost all of that time should be relationship building, trust building, and, and not status reporting and other things that can be done via Slack. One of the things that we learned through our P2Con over time is initially it was like, we only have two days together. Let's stuff it jam full of like programming and we could like have all these different sessions and all this stuff. And when, once we took our foot off the throttle a little bit and we gave more time for people to just hang out together or we would set up like activities like mountain biking, ATVing, rafting, things like that. And once we just allowed people to be together, everybody found it way more valuable. Is this causing a higher than normal turnover? Huge impact, Etienne. I'm seeing this everywhere and it's showing up in two ways. One is turnover. Like you mentioned, people will just be like, 
peace out. I don't, I'm not even going to ask you for a raise. I'm just gone because there are no more geographic barriers to working to wherever you want to. And the other thing is people just getting a job offer and never calling you back. This was a very rare occurrence pre-pandemic, but it happens all the time now. They're just collecting offers. So it's very frustrating for hiring managers. It's detrimental to teams. Do you mean getting like you you give someone an offer and you never even hear back whether or not they want it, feedback, anything? They just gone. They just collect the offer letter, make a big stack of them and use wow. them negotiating tools. Yeah, and, and I'm and I'm hearing also people reneging on signed offers. So even that two weeks before they join or the it seems like the longer that delta or the longer that gap, the more likely it is that person can then leverage the signed contract as a way to get something better. And the thing is, I don't even see malice in that. I just see it as, hey, you offered me 300 and this other company is offering me 400. I owe it to my family to bye-bye and, and move on. That's right. I'm not faulting them for doing that. I would appreciate a callback. Say so I'm not going to take the offer. That would be nice. But I don't fault them for, for you know, maximizing their earnings. I think everyone should probably be doing that. But another thing that's happened that's related to that is we've just discussed some of the barriers to remote work, some of the disadvantages to remote work. But companies have realized we're in a pandemic, so I don't have a choice. It doesn't matter what those disadvantages are. We're going to do it anyway. And that has led to the rapid and sudden globalization of the technology workforce just intensely globalized overnight. So other countries have different cultures around whether or not you, you get a callback or whether or not you should ask your boss for a raise before you quit or even talk to them before you quit. It's just become a, a very complicated hiring and retention environment. I like the way you phrase it as an overnight globalization of that workforce. So many of our startups were built on managing their cost by outsourcing to geographical locations. And that just seems to be out the door. I'm getting regular calls now from founders who say to me, hey, our dev shop used to charge us 25 an hour and now they want 45 an hour. And it's for obvious reasons. They all have to up their prices in order to strike this opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly right. They have to do that. And it used to be that you would have a core engineering team in the States and they would meet and they would be your core team. And then you would have a globalized workforce that was doing everything else. Now the Americans are, are out the window well, in a lot of cases. And in every region where we seek programmers, the prices are going up. It, it does not matter how edgy or weird that area is. Hiring managers have to treat the entire world as one global hiring pool now. And it happened in a year. And losing people, how has it been for you, for all of you? It's ebbed and flowed, but there's definitely, especially towards the end of 2020, a lot of folks leaving and, and then pretty steady kinds of attrition. But that's, there's two sides to that coin because... On the other side is we also last year hired more people than we've ever hired in our history as well. I think it's something like maybe up, upwards of like 40 to 45% of the current size of our company was hired in the last year. So there was a, a pretty, folks moving jobs works in both directions. You certainly lose experience and knowledge of systems and projects and clients and people, but you can also gain a lot from it. It's an opportunity to reshape your workforce towards the skills that you need now versus the ones that you had before. And also 
new people come in with a lot of enthusiasm and that can be really good for culture, especially when if folks are, you know, seeing their friends leave, but then new folks come in, they're really excited. They bring new ideas and it's, it can be really, it can be a really good thing too. Yeah. That's actually a good point. There are regions where this kind of turnover has been normal. For example, like in Silicon Valley, historically, the turnover has been a bit higher because you could always just walk down the street, right? You could go from Twitter, Facebook, and you could do all the fang tour and all that. And so to a certain extent, that kind of, now what's happening is this turnover level is globalized, as Scott said. And I think it does require a rethink about how you think about your workforce a little bit. I like to describe it a little bit as like a hollowing out of the middle. So now it used to be you would have like you would just build your team local, everyone's saying, and you would look at medium salary rates. And now it's more like what you need to think about is you need to have a core group that's really deals with your edge, your company's IP. Think hard about what it is about your company that's unique and hold on to those people for dear life, maybe pay them a lot. But then the work that's not core to your mission, you got to look to to do that globally and look to do it for at a cheaper rate because it isn't core to your mission, but that's a complete paradigm shift, right? That doesn't happen overnight. It seems to me that's what's going on. It's a nice, it's a good reminder that this has been going on in the hot markets for sure. Yeah. So what do you do when someone that you rely on, they're knee deep in your sprints or in your management team and you, in your planning have relied that they're going to be around? What do you do when they come to you and say, I think I'm going to leave or I'm quitting? It's always been important to remove key man issues in your organization. It's always been important, but it's more important than ever now. You have to backstop people with other backstops, right? Like you got to backstop your backstops. At this and you have to be hyper competitive. You have to be hyper competitive to prevent that turnover. So I, I, I feel like that, yeah, and it's happened so rapidly. I love that because this does address a, a general leadership complacency, doesn't it? The, oh, we can just outsource for 15 bucks an hour and I can build five companies and see what happens. That's gone because you're going to pay a pretty price now for development. Oh, I can just bulldoze this poor engineering manager and have them be do everything because they're my right-hand person. And that's out the door because if the happiness levels dip, they're gone which again, leadership complacency. And I love what you said, Scott, around building in that redundancy is really something you should have been doing all along. And it just seems like these leadership weaknesses are really emphasized and these gaps are really glaring and it can really hurt the company if you as CTO aren't covering your bases, like you said, and proactively taking care of the technical organization. Absolutely. When you think of it from a people perspective, even though some people might be leaving, understanding what's the opportunity for them. And if they've provided value to your organization and, and had a lot of continuity over time, it can be a good thing that they're leaving. I know it will hurt the business, but for them, if you do truly care about them as people, it can be a great thing for them that they've quote unquote graduated and they get to take their next step. And it's also a really positive thing for your company because that's how you allow opportunity to some other people that are there to grow into that role, to step up into that role. Because sometimes if, if you have at the top, it's always the same people, the folks that are lower in the organization that are coming up, they'll be like, well, I can't get to that group. No one ever leaves that group. So my only opportunity is elsewhere. 
That's why a growing company is good because it makes opportunity, but that's also where turnover can be a good thing in that it it shows people that that they have something to work for. They can step into that role. They can still grow in your organization and there's not a limit to where they can go. That abundance mindset's driving me nuts right now. That's really that scarcity abundance mindset in leadership. So we've been in business 20 years and I, I can still remember how terrified I've been Every time someone I thought that we could not lose because it would kill our business left and we found out over time that it didn't kill our business. That doesn't mean that it was great that they were gone and that we didn't miss them and that maybe for a while the work that we did might not have been quite as good as it was before, but we've survived all of those things. Every can't lose person who's left, we've survived. So you come into that mindset over time. Fundamentally, I agree with Frank that it's not a bad thing that we have a larger pool of, of people around the world to, that we can access now because we're pretty much all remote companies. But the impact that it has had on CTOs is you just have had to get better at everything. All the things that you should have been doing, make sure every person on your team had a, has a career growth plan making sure all the projects that they're working on are juicy and uh, and interesting and that people believe in the cause. All the things that you have to do as a, a CTO, you just have to do them better now. Not really different solutions here. It's just that everyone has to up their game. Mm, I, I really do love, I really do love the gauntlet being thrown down at the CTO's feet this way. And again, it's that like I said, the abundance versus scarcity, the ownership versus victim, the, it's really everyone, not at the least, the leadership has to raise their game. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think what's getting exposed is bad management. And so it's just acting as a magnifying glass for that. It's like your story, Etienne, with the VP who wants to know what's going on. And my question would be, well, what was he doing before the pandemic? It's really interesting. And, then, and, and, and that seepage of bad behavior, which is just because we're all humans, mm-hmm. you have to be on top of managing that, coaching that, helping people. Like, hey, VP, I love that you woke up this morning with you want to know certain things, but there's a way to bring it to the organization, especially in a virtual environment that will minimize the collateral damage and the fallout and ruin everyone's day, and even worse, damage the overall culture and the trust that exists in that group. So let's talk a little bit about this question we started off with, which was a new hire comes in, does not have the benefit of existing real-world relationships. How have you changed your thinking about onboarding them into a culture of productivity, collaboration, shared results. What have you been doing to ensure that? I've been in a state of confusion. I've been questioning a lot of the things that I once believed since the pandemic began. I've done things that in the past I thought would not work, like, oh, I have a all Latin American team with a Filipino BA and an Indian and an Indian scrum master, and none of them really speak great English hyperproductive team. Why? And I put together an all a Latin American team and they all and say, you're free to speak your native language, never get anything done. Why? I just don't have any of the answers. And we're just, we're doing things we've never done before. At least I am. Right. And I just, I'm questioning a lot of the assumptions that I used to have about what makes a productive team. Do they need to have face-to-face? I really need to get to know each other to have a satisfying professional experience. I, I don't know. 
I, I think one thing that works that I'd vote for is some kind of mentorship program. Like we used to do these like in a weak way when face-to-face, but now I feel like it's really effective because it's always like, always the problem is if you're a new person in a 50 person team, is it okay to DM my boss right now? You know, there's sort of, there's, so I think you have to explicitly break barriers. You can say, this is your mentor or, or let's say buddy for your onboarding. You can talk to them anytime. They'll help you navigate the culture. Things like that, you have to be explicit about. Like you can't have the open door policy thing doesn't work obviously anymore. You have to grease those relationships. And I think it also depends at what experience level some someone's entering your organization as well. Someone who's had a bit more experience or maybe a couple of jobs, can they have their own strategies for getting to know folks in an organization and integrating, whereas someone that's a bit more junior is they don't they don't know what to do. We've definitely tried to formalize our our onboarding a bit more we've definitely introduced a lot more like kind of cross company like welcome chats for folks when they enter so they know who does what and where they are and they get they're starting to get that opportunity to build those personal relationships which helps when you're communicating over slack a lot so you understand like how someone communicates and if they're sarcastic or not and do they joke a lot and you kind of get a chance to build some of that in there yeah, Scott threw me off with that little riddle. It makes me think a lot, too. I lose sleep over it because what if all of the stories that we've been telling ourselves about, like what makes a productive team and what sort of social interactions that you need to have were just corporate folklore that no one ever challenged? I, I, I don't know. I just if you had asked me this question before the pandemic, I would have given you some very sure answers. Like you got to get people interacting out of work. You got to get people, uh, you got to get people caring about each other. You got to, you got to make sure that everyone believes in the mission and things like that. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if everyone on some of my teams believe in the mission and even pr- on teams I consider productive. So I think we just have to go back to the drawing board here and see what outputs we get from the teams that we're constructing and just be scientists. I think we need to avoid treating all of the individuals that enter our organizations as these common things that you can just put together. Uh, this onboarding strategy and this team building strategy should work for every team of, of any collection of people. And I think it's more about what are the actual collection of individuals that are coming into that and how do you get the most out of them? And also realizing if someone new is coming into your team, you have a new team. It's not just your team with an additional person, the interactions change. There's just a brand new dynamic. So you should always treat any addition or subtraction from a team as you need a whole new gelling period and a new way to become that new team with more or fewer people. What you're saying to me sounds almost brand new, Frank, even though I tell CEOs and founders all the time, don't see your developers as just these little output boxes that all look the same. They're all human beings with their own needs. And I think, especially at seven CTOs, we talk a lot about the curious mindset and the intention of our relationships. And some engineers may need face-to-face, who am I working for? Why am I doing this work? Other people are thankful for the job. They just want to heads down, code. And maybe as a function of leadership, that curious mindset of, hey, what is going to make this re- relationship work for you? What does success look like to you? I, I want to be able to have a drink with people and get to know. Other person might just tell you how to win 
at a relationship with them. I think, again, it just falls onto us to be relationally intentional and be curious about what is going to work for the new hire and not assume what is going to work for them. So that's what I'm hearing in my cans. These are just things are going to rapidly change as they always do. CTOs are going to have to adapt, get better at everything all at once. <clears throat> that's just like how our lives work. And I think another thing, just setting, a, setting aside remote work, which I think we've pretty much discussed in, in detail here. What if 20 years from now, I can't even hire the best developers directly and I have to negotiate with a DAO to get any development resources? That might be the future of work. Like literally not being able to hire anyone. My brain is churning on that. Drop, <laughs> drop the mic. <laughs> The future of work. I think it's like you said earlier, Scott, we all have to be scientists. I like that kind of metaphor, right? Like you have to just adapt to it. I think too many leaders don't spend enough time thinking about the way things work. Like, for example, we talk a lot, let's take a recent example, right? People will say things in conversations with me, for example, to be like, what's the best way to organize agile teams? Tell, teach me about the Spotify model. What did Spotify figure out as an example? I think to me, the lesson of Spotify, it's not that Spotify found the recipe written on stone tablets, right? The lesson there is they had a leadership team that was constantly listening, constantly willing to run experiments until they figured out what works for them. That's the lesson. That's the muscle you want to build is the adaptability muscle. Not to try to look through a crystal ball and figure out where it's going. Yeah, absolutely. We cannot predict where any of these things are going, which is why I threw out that absolutely wild example. It is wild. Um, who, who, who would ever think that we would have suddenly rapidly globalized like this? It certainly was not on my agenda of things to be thinking about in 2019. I'll tell you that right now. And I'm starting to see developers just not wanting to sell you their whole work life. They're like, my work life is so valuable mm. and I've got 86 offers. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide up my time and sell it in little chunks to the highest bidder. And that in principle is what a DAO is. So I'm thinking, how can we adapt to, to something like that? Because we're actually watching it happen before our eyes. Dude, you had to invoke a DAO right now. You really had to do that? Like, I got to be, you know what I'm saying? Things are changing rapidly out there. And then you're like, once you're a remote workforce, you can participate in a DAO. You can work for four people that is going to an office anymore. And, and isn't that just the best? If I was to think about my own day, then the problems I solve, fighting board, solving new problems, that would be the best way to use your time is I want to work for four or five different companies and do the best bits, A, hedge my bets, which kind of sucks, but in a volatile environment, I'm diversifying my income and B, I get to solve new problems. I'm building out my portfolio of skill sets. Yeah. So it just makes sense that what you said is genius, Scott. Is like, I'm going to sell you a fraction of my capability. It's not bad for companies either. I can tell you a story. I know a, a big company that there, there was a product manager that wanted to experiment with the product. And they had this sort of epic battle with the engineering team. The engineering team, team just said flat out, we can't do it. You guys, you have overcommitted us with other projects, the classic product management engineering argument. And product management in this company simply went to a contractor, essentially a dev shop, because it wasn't like core IP development. It was just an experiment they wanted to run. 
they hired a third party, they got it done in five months and they ran their experiment. So it's like everybody wins in that arrangement. So instead of having, as a company, the, the moral of the story is you can have a very flexible workforce and just focus your full-time hires on the core IP of your company. I think I'm, I'm sufficiently flying way above 30,000 feet right now because what if that was a competitive advantage in your hiring? Absolutely. Hey, we know that you want to solve a thousand problems. We want you to spend, solve all our problems, but we are completely fine with whatever. Manage your time any way you want. Just enjoy your time with us and we're not going to think of it as full time or X number of hours a week. This is the gig economy, right? <laughs> it's, almost yeah. like a, it's almost like a smart contract on a blockchain. Yeah, that, that works for some people. It doesn't necessarily work for everybody. At an agency, one of the things of feedback that you'll hear a lot when people leave is that, oh, they want to go work for a product company so that they're not changing teams every three months and have a different client that they're working for. And they want to get into something and have it be meaty and be able to stay there for a while. And there's definitely like a grass is greener kind of thing that always goes on. But some people want to really deeply understand a system and work on it for years and be stuck with the consequences of the decisions they're making today and addressing them for tomorrow. I think that's a very valuable point, but here's where I think the genius lies is have them opt into that. So the general rule is, like Paul said, there's a competitive advantage around, hey, we have business objectives. We want the best people in the world. Even if I can get five minutes from a genius, might be more valuable to me than five months from some person who is hedging their bets. That person that I could get to come on full time with my little startup. Exactly. Like, hey, we have remote foos, so we, we can all... We send you little things. And I, I really think that's, I don't know. I feel like that's a sort of an original thought. Maybe it's happening out there, but what if that was the competitive advantage in the way you're hiring? It, it might be. And I don't want to give anyone in the audience the impression that I'm naysaying any of these sorts of things. The only thing that I'm pointing out is we're a bunch of CTOs. And if one thing is true, one thing we know for sure about the future is that it's going to get more complicated. You're not going to be able to rest on your laurels. You're not even going to be able to assume that 10 years from now that you're going to be able to hire someone full time as far as I'm concerned. And, and that's just, I don't know. It makes me feel anxious and excited because every, all of these things comes with pros and cons. And I think it speaks to a conflict. And Paul, I know you could talk to this, but it speaks to that conflict that's happening in the hiring machine inside of companies, right? This coming together of the old and the new in the HR team, the hiring managers, the recruiting managers, the CTO being told this is how we hire and it has to go through this seven-step process. And CTOs, no, I, this is how we need to hire because this is what I'm seeing. And so internally, it seems like there's, yeah. there's some upgrades that need to happen as well, massive ones. The biggest barrier we might face is actually traditional organizational boundaries. And those silos create frictions that might actually prevent you from executing. And so what you're talking about, Etienne, is that traditionally we have, and mid, even mid-sized companies, not even talking about big companies, but mid-sized ones, you have an HR recruiting department that's responsible for going out and doing keyword searches on resumes and, and doing screening. 
Then you have an engineering team that says to the HR recruiter, go find me this person. And it's like a laundry list of, of unicorn skills. And what's missing there, you're right, is a deeper thinking about what is the overall mission? How could we execute it? It's not just a question of going out and looking at resumes, it's deep thought around who can execute it? What can we outsource? What's quarter IP mission, what's not? So we need to break the organization in order to, to rethink that. Thank you so much for listening. We'll do a part two on this soon. We talk about mental health in our engineering teams and for ourselves. Go check out 7ctos.com slash podcast. And you can join our Slack community over there if you want. And talk to you soon.